0: Jonah chapter 4, We're going to, I'm going to read through this entire chapter for us before we begin our message this morning. Jonah chapter 4, but it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, please Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundance in loving kindness, the one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in, in the shade until he could see what, could, what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plants? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on a plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I have should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? Lord, we are grateful for this privilege to look at your word and look at this one short episode in the life, in redemptive history. Lord, I ask that as we go through this passage that we ultimately see your compassion and your mercy. And may that draw us to you as well as compel others to come to saving faith. Be with us now. Allow us to know your word. Uh, Be with me. Uh, Allow me to say the right words, the words that you want our people to know. And Lord, withhold the things that you feel would not be helpful for us. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. If you were to read the book of Jonah, you would think that from a liter- literary perspective that you would end in chapter 3. Because chapter 3 ends in this glorious moment where everyone comes to saving faith. This entire city, this whole group of people at one point that were enemies of God has repented from their sin. Jonah 3 ends in such a high note. So why chapter 4? Chapter 4 is often described as, as this... This is a confusing chapter because it seems like it ends really abruptly. But Jonah writes chapter 4, I believe, as a seasoned believer. God allowed Jonah to write this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to show that Jonah still had something that he needed to learn. There's still uh, work that needs to be done in his own walk. I've hinted at this throughout the entire series of Jonah. Jonah wrote this in retrospect. He's writing this looking back at at his life. This means that Jonah, at this point, is writing as a seasoned believer. He's an older man. He looks back at his life, and he, and he, he looks at this episode, this, this entire situation of the book of Jonah, which probably lasts about a month and a half. He wrote all of this to show the compassion of God. This chapter is here to show his humility, and it's right to all the followers of God to see the compassion of God that, the, that, the, that this is the compassionate God that they follow. Jonah has become this humble servant, looking back at this portion of his life and just seeing how good his God is. In a lot of ways, this is how the Christian life is, right? We have these moments of success and moments of failures. There are moments of triumphs and moments of defeats. And Jonah is, 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 has recorded this. If he just only wanted to show the highlights, the good parts, he would have ended in chapter three, but he, show, he, 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 through the working of the Holy Spirit, put chapter four in so that we can know that there is comfort, that in the life of the believer, there are moments that we do exceedingly well, and there are moments that we backslide and fail. The Bible speaks of the dangers of being in balance, these extremes, whether it's Theological or in in practice? To use the example of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes talks about the, the exceptions and as well the extremes of life. If you focus on, let's say, the good things in life and only the good things in life, you would be really troubled and confused when bad things happen. Ecclesiastes speaks that there's a, a time and a season for everything. If you focus on just the, the good, meaning, let's say, for example, when there's birth, the, the joys of, of, of people coming into the world, if that's the only thing you think about in life, you'll be discouraged and disappointed when death comes. If you focus on one and not the other, you'll be, there will be an imbalance in your life. And a wise and a mature believer understands that The totality of Scripture speaks of both the positive, negative, and the exceptions. The Bible has different categories of texts. There's laws and principles and attributes of God. And I think laws is something that we understand, right? There are things that you do and you don't do. You don't commit murder. Uh, You don't commit adultery. These are really black and white. These are really binary. It's, it's, It's really clear. It's just a list of things that you can and can't do. But biblical principles, that's a little bit harder because they're just, they're, they're principles. If you swing too much to one way, you can become a legalist. And if you swing too much to the other way, you become an antinomian, someone that doesn't believe in the, in, in the, in the laws of God. A wise believer takes into account and meditate the totality of God's words. You want to exercise biblical principles well so you can live wisely because life is filled with complications, exceptions, and complexities. And the attributes of God, although it is easy to know the attributes of God, it is hard in terms of balancing who he is. When we think of the debates between the Calvinists and the Arminians, they're, they're really focusing on the extremes sometimes. You know, sometimes the Calvinists can focus so much on the sovereignty of God that they neglect the, the responsibility of man. In the same ways, our men can focus so much on man's responsibility that they neglect the sovereignty of God. Sometimes our liberal friends will focus on God's love and grace and kindness and tolerance that they forget about God's holiness, wrath, and justice. And the opposite extreme is true. The Westboro Baptist Church, they have only focus on God's holiness, wrath, and justice, and they forget that our God is indeed a God that is kind, merciful, merciful. God is more than just a handful of attributes that you dwell on. He is perfect in love, in holiness, in justice, mercy, kindness, compassion, anger, self-existence, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresent, wise, goodness, jealous, and the list goes on and on. And the greater and deeper knowledge you have of God, the more you will worship him and the more that you will faithfully represent him. A.W. Tozer said this in his famous book, The Knowledge of the Holy. This is the first sentence in that book. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If you want to be a mature believer, you must know God and his word. A wise and mature believer that can faithfully represent God must figure out the theological balance in conduct and in doctrine. You must have a balanced orthodoxy and orthopraxy. This book uh, highlights the mercy of God. And, and uh, just to summarize for those who've, who are new here, who's, who maybe this is the first time hearing this, the message in Jonah, Jonah begins with God giving Jonah a call. He tells him to go to this place called Nineveh to go and declare a message of judgment. And the implication is that when you proclaim a message of judgment is that there is a means of salvation. And this displeased Jonah. He did not want to have anything to do with the Ninevites, so he fled. He went to the opposite direction. He went to this, <coughs> excuse me. He bought a ticket to this place called Tarshish. It's, a, it's the opposite end of where Nineveh was supposed to be. And he got into his boat, and he went. And as he got into his boat, God hurled a storm to get Jonah's attention. And all the people in the boats, they were scared. They were trying to uh, make offerings to their own pagan gods. And in the end, they found out that the reason why the storm was there was because of Jonah. And they asked him, what is it that we need to do to survive? And Jonah told him, you need to throw me over the boat. It caused a great fear with all the sailors, and they pleaded with the God of Jonah, and they said that if, if we throw him over, please don't let judgment come upon us. And they did. They threw Jonah over the boats, and the storm ceased, and they began to be worshipers of this, of, this, of Yahweh. Chapter 2, God provides a big and great fish to swallow Jonah, to preserve him, to keep him alive. And while he's in the belly of this great fish, he prays for deliverance. And God provides him a means to do so. This this whale or this fish uh, uh, kept Jonah in his belly for three days and three nights. And after that time, this fish vomited Jonah into the shore. And last time we were here in chapter 3, Jonah went out. He went out to preach to the Ninevites. He said five words in the Hebrew, and he told them that yet 40 days Nineveh would be overthrown, and every single one of the people there repented. It so, that even the animals repented. And when we get to this chapter, Jonah seems to have got some things right about God, but he seems to forget other attributes of who God is. There's certain imbalance in his knowledge and thinking, and God seeks to correct that about him. And As a pastor, my hope is that we can think rightly about our God. If you want to be a mature believer, (laughs) if you want to be someone that's used by God mightily, you must have a balanced view of who God is. You must make sure that your convictions, your cheerfulness, and your compassions are in check so that you can represent God more faithfully. Three areas in our lives that we can have an unbalanced or imbalance is our convictions, our cheerfulness, and our compassions. So the first one, our unbalanced convictions. You notice in verse 1, But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. You notice this very first word, this chapter, is the word but. In a time where an entire nation has come to saving faith, when the entire nation has repented, as said in the verse before, when God saw their deeds and they turned from their wicked ways, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. God withheld his wrath because the people of Nineveh repented. And you would think that he would be rejoicing. His ministry was a success. And you would think that of all the people that would be praising God and offering sacrifices to God, you'd think it would be Jonah. But instead, he was angry. Jonah was angry. What Jonah hoped for was that God would actually destroy them. Jonah thought, I did what you told me to do. So do what I want you to do. Destroy this people. Jonah's hope was that he would declare this message of judgment and salvation, and that the people of Nineveh. He was hoping that these people, that their hearts would be hardened, like the way Pharaoh was, and that God will destroy them. Jonah had no desire to see this people come to salvation. Jonah saw these people and the repentance, and he and it, and it angered him. In the original, it says a great evil to him, and it burned him. Jonah saw God's actions as wrong. He saw what God did by relenting his wrath as something that is not right. Jonah essentially sees God's mercy as something that is unjust. And again, to give you a little more context of what the Ninevites were like, the Ninevites, whenever they would go and conquer people, a way for them to confuse and even in some ways do some sort of ethnic cleansing is when they overcome and overpower a city, they will take the people and they'll scatter them throughout the world. They'll take them and they'll bring them to different parts of the world, and they'll leave them there. And the reason that is is they don't want them to know their culture. They want them to forget their language. They want them to forget the gods that they worship. And the Ninevites will often do this not because they needed the land in particular. They did it just because they liked it. They liked it to be brutal. They wanted to go out and destroy and conquer other nations. And, the, and Israel and Jonah knew of this. These people were enemies to Yahweh and to Israel. And this is why Jonah felt that Nineveh deserved all of God's wrath. What Jonah had was a misplaced view or imbalanced view of who God is. Jonah knew God is a God of compassion, God of faithfulness, and he's kind. But in that very moment, he would rather see God's holiness and wrath. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. Jonah prays. It seems to be that Jonah actually blames God for the survival of the Ninevites. Jonah begins by saying, was this not what I said? Literally, is my words. Jonah is bold and foolish at the same time. Jonah had the audacity to claim that what he thought and what he did was right, while what God did was wrong. Notice this word, forestall. It's this idea of being in front of. He's trying to be a human shield uh, for the for God and between God and the Ninevites. He tried to be a stumbling block for God. When I was working at Grace Church as a short term ministry coordinator, every year uh, we would have this meal, this lunch for the, all the team members, and uh, it, you, it, it takes up the whole day. It'll be after second service, and we'll have uh, lunch, and we'll have these different. Uh, uh, speakers come, and usually two of our elders from our church will come, and and then we'll have some time of prayer, and then we'll, and it leads into night church. We'll have this rehearsal, by the way, you know, singing with the church and everything. And I remember the very last year I was there, uh, we had our lunch, and you, and Austin Duncan was one of the speakers. And then I remember the weeks leading up to, it, I asked him, "Hey, you remember you're going to be there, right?" He said, "Yeah, I got you, I got you." It's like, all right, cool. So then the day of. Uh, we had our lunch, and, uh, and I was waiting. It was, uh, I think the meeting was around 1 o'clock where Austin would come and share, and he didn't show up. And I was, like, horrified because if he doesn't show up, then everything's going to get pushed back and it's going to mess up the entire evening. So I texted him. I was like, hey, man, where are you? And he said, stall. I'm on my way. And that's horrifying to me because I didn't know what that means. I did not know if he was downstairs in the basement in his office. I didn't know if he was in John McCarthy's house. I don't know if he was at his own house. I don't know where he was coming from. But all he said was, stall. And so I did. I, just, I tried to get up there and I tried to do a quick Q&A, to, try to basically buy time before Austin came. And it felt like an eternity when I was up there. I was just trying to just round people up and like try to explain why uh, we we're at this little delay. And in the end, when Austin showed up, I was like, oh, praise the Lord, and just like, I just kind went back to my seat, and like, okay, Austin's here, and he, he, he went to do his thing. Stalling is a difficult thing to do. It is hard for humans to stall for human ideas, but it is impossible to stall God's plan. It's implied here when Jonah tried to stall God, to forestall God's plan, his, his hope was that there might be some people that would die before Jonah got there. Because Jonah understood that this will happen, that the people will be saved. And his hope that maybe one or two of the Ninevites will die before he arrives. He was trying to forestall God from saving even one of the people here. Jonah wanted these people to die. And notice these attributes that, God, that Jonah had described of God. You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. This is a reference back to Exodus 34, 6, where he describes these exact same attributes. This is back when the time when, when Moses, before when he was with his people, he described God in this way. <laughs> Numbers 14, 18 highlights the same type of attributes. Jonah knew that if he went to proclaim the judgment of God, that these people would be saved. And Jonah wanted to pit God's attribute against one another. This imbalance of conviction caused Jonah to live wrongly before the Lord. And I think before we think, oh, why are you so foolish, Jonah? Understand that it, this actually happens in our own hearts as well. Even in the New Testament times, when Paul was writing to the book of Romans, there were people that thought that if, they could ex- if God was willing to give them grace for all of their sin, that they could sin some more. And, John, and and Paul, in Romans chapter 6, said, may it never be. Just because you have God's grace, just because you understand that, that doesn't give you excuse to sin. And I think that's what happens with, uh, when our lives when we, when we have an imbalanced, an unbalanced view of all about the Lord. We we pit his attributes against one another. Some of us have only a few attributes that we dwell on and not others. A mature believer must diligently know God and all that he is. Otherwise, we won't be able to represent Christ faithfully in this world. Sadly, our unbalanced conviction often lead us to live a life of hypocrisy. Look at what happened to Jonah. He's obviously a hypocrite in the way that he's responding to what God has done to the Ninevites. How can Jonah grumble against God's mercy when not long ago he received God's mercy? In chapter 2, he praises God for his mercy, and in chapter 4, he deplores God for his mercy. I wonder if if that's like that with you. Has someone ever hurt you so badly that you did not want to show them mercy? Well, there is a co-worker or your child or your spouse your parents, your classmate, a fellow believer in the faith. Maybe someone have done something so horribly wrong to you, instead of showing them mercy, you would, rather them, you would rather that they suffer somehow. And when our convictions are unbalanced, we will be blinded to the grace and mercy that is shown to us. We have unbalanced convictions. We don't want others to experience grace or mercy that is shown. You may want justice to be served unto those who you think don't deserve it, but you forget how much God has shown you mercy, how God has justified you through the atoning work of his son. Jonah was so upset that he wanted to die. Verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. What a change in demeanor and an attitude. Chapter 2, Jonah wanted to die, wanted to live, and now he wanted to die. Jonah is perfectly fine with God's saving hand if it's for him or for the Israelites or for people he thinks is worthy. But Jonah cannot fathom living in a world where God loves these people just as much as the Israelites. He cannot imagine these people being part of God's covenant. He cannot imagine that, the, that one day as he, if, when he perishes and when they perish together, that they will be in heaven together. Jonah can't imagine a world where these people are spared. So he asked God to take his life. Verse 4, the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? God's question is rhetorical. Is God's anger justified? Is it a right response? God is showing his mercy through this question because Jonah failed to see it. Jonah failed to see God's mercy. God has shown mercy to Jonah over and over again in this book. God didn't destroy Jonah right away. It is to show him mercy and also to teach him once again that about, his, about God's mercy. If, you've ever, uh, if God ever blessed someone that, that, that hurt you and you feel that it is unjust, ask yourself this question. Do you have reason to be angry? Do you have the right to demand God to not spare this other person? What right do you have to demand of God? God ignores Jonah's dumb request because it is a sinful request. In James 4.3, it tells us that, uh, that we don't receive because we don't ask, and we ask and we don't receive it because it's, it is catering to our flesh. It's grounded on self instead of the glory of God. Jonah, forgot. Jonah forget that, forgot that God does not have selective hearing when it comes to mercy. Jonah cried, Jonah was saved, and Jonah was happy. Nineveh cried, Nineveh was saved, and Jonah was mad. Our misplaced convictions can often lead us to color God in a way that is not biblical. In order for us to represent and present God faithfully, we must have a balanced view of our convictions. Do you know God? And I'm not talking about just the attributes that you know. I mean, do you know him for all the other attributes, even if some of the attributes make you uncomfortable? If you want to be a mature believer, you must have a clearer picture of who God is. We want and hope that all the Christians in this church, as they evangelize or discipling others in the faith to give a genuine and, and more accurate view of God, because this is what who our God is, and the mature believers can handle and describe each and every attribute of God that's revealed in Scripture. So, if you want to be a mature believer, not only do you need to have a balanced view of your convictions, but also you must have a balanced cheerfulness. If you want to be a mature believer, you must not have a unbalanced cheerfulness. Our second point: unbalanced cheerfulness. Verse, uh, just verse five to eight. Uh, Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. Jonah did not get what he wanted, so he pouted and walked out on, on Nineveh. The, the implication is that maybe if he sat outside for a little bit, maybe that the repentance and the remorse is not genuine. Maybe that when he leaves that they can say, oh, the, oh Jonah's gone. Uh, that means that we can go back to our old ways. He's sitting out there in hopes that these people would not, would actually go back to their sin and that God will destroy them. Imagine Jonah here just getting upset like a little child, folding his arm, taking toys and leaving, stomping away and just hoping that God will destroy them. He makes this little uh, shelter, and different translations use the word booth, and this is actually not like a big type of shelter, just maybe think, maybe it could be probably, maybe smaller than this pulpit, but in four sides. It's made of just little rocks and sticks that he's found. He he was able to have some shade in it, Um, and I would imagine because it's it's made of just sticks and rocks, he had to just kind of like go around to dodge the sun, because the sun moves. And he was uncomfortable. He made this out of just things that he had. But yet, look at verse 6. So the Lord God appointed a plant. It grew over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. Jonah made this pitiful little shelter and can't even do it right. And he was uncomfortable. But yet God appointed this plant to give him comfort. This word appointed showed up uh, in the past in chapter 1, verse 17, uh, where God appointed the great fish to swallow Jonah, and we'll see it again in, in, the, in, this, in the next verse as well as uh, verse 8, where God has, has, again, demonstrated his ability to control all of nature. He is a sovereign God. And this plant grew supernaturally overnight, and it caused Jonah to be extremely happy which is the opposite of what happened to him earlier because he was extremely angry at at the Ninevites, at God for saving the Ninevites. He was kind of like, he's going back and forth. This this, this happiness is short-lived. You notice that in in verse 7, but God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. God appointed this worm to attack this plant. I don't know, I thought about what does this worm look like? It must be something huge because this is a huge plant, and how big does this worm have to be in order to destroy this plant? It scared me just thinking about it, so I did not want to Google it. I just figured, just use my own imagination, just probably like this huge worm that killed this plant. This plant only gave shade for one day, and Jonah appreciated this plant as short-lived as it was, and God wanted to use this as an object lesson to show his misplaced Happiness. And again, God wanted to push this some more. Look at verse 8 to add salt to the wound. He said, and verse, <coughs> verse 8 reads, When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. God appointed this wind to get Jonah's attention of his misplaced joy. God sent a scorching east wind and it beat down on his head. And this took away all of, of, of Jonah's comfort. This word beat down is the same word to describe that worm attacking the plant. Jonah again demanded that death is better for him. He goes from happy to sad and happy and sad again. Jonah was extremely happy, not by the repentance of this nation, but because this plant has withered. This plant withered and made him extremely angry, and Jonah's anger paralleled that of his anger towards the repentance of Nineveh. He had a greater affection for this plant than the city. His priorities were off when it comes to what matters most. A few months ago, I was with my wife at home, and we watched this this show on Netflix. It's like, I guess it's kind of like a a self-help kind of uh, show and else is like kind of like a organizing show it's this lady that tried to help uh, arrange things and tidy up the house and this lady was trying to explain that if you want to get rid of all the clutter one of the things that you need to do is just to touch the object and it's supposed to spark joy in your life and I was looking at this like what would <laughs> spark joy in your life and it got even more absurd because at one point she goes in the middle of the house and she prays to the house. She like thanks the house. And then the different parts of me, like all the like, red, red lights turn on, like the father's side of me was like looking around to make sure Ruby is not there because I do not want my daughter to see this. The father's, the husband's side of me was like, okay, I guess I can organize my house a little bit better you know, to make it more comfortable for my spouse and others that are there. But the pastoral side of me became concerned because yeah, it's like these are people that are looking at things, that are trying to find joy in things. Now, I wonder how many people, after watching this show, start touching all of their things and see the sparks of joy in their life and start tossing things around. But when they, when they touch God's word, did that bring them joy? Because as a Christian, you understand that joy is not something that just comes and goes, it's an attribute, it's a fruit of the Spirit. You know, it's it's who you are as a Christian. You should always be joyful, but you should be joyful not for things, but because of who God is. If you think that's absurd that people would just touch the, uh, objects and things. You, you're, you're right. It's it's these are lifeless things. And when I when I saw that scene in that show, and I thought about Jonah, because Jonah had this affection for objects instead of people. He was more concerned about the things that are temporal instead of the things of of eternal significance. And as Christians, things don't spark joy. Christ does. Imagine as, imagine as people, of all the things around, they pick up God's word. Does God's word bring you joy? When you study who he is, when you know more about him, does it make your heart grow more fonder of who he is? Again, this isn't to say that you can't enjoy the things of this life. Even in Ecclesiastes, it tells you that you can enjoy the short and miserable life that you have. Enjoy all the things that God has given you. But the most important thing you must do is fear God. Have the right perspective on the stuff that God has given you. God is the giver of all good gifts. Praise him. Worship him. Devote your life to him. Don't worship the creation. Worship the creator. Jonah found more joy in things of this world instead of God working through the world. This is actually the only time when you see Jonah happy, and he's described as extremely happy. Jonah was a prophet of God who was more happy about this plant that God has raised up instead of the entire nation that God saved. And when he lost this plant, he wished that he died as well. What causes you to have joy? What causes you to be cheerful? What causes you to be in a state where you are rejoicing? What you love and what you're most cheerful about really shows you how backwards things are, how your priorities are not right. Are you more broken over your phone dropping than seeing, than being broken over your brothers and sisters falling into sin? Are you more Broken over your favorite sports team losing than someone losing fight over sin? Are you rejoicing more, and then they'll put it maybe in the backward, in the, in the inverse, are you rejoicing, are you celebrating more that your team, your favorite sports team, is, has won this particular game than your brothers and sisters having victory over sin? Oftentimes our affections are misplaced because we love the things of this world more than the things of eternal significance. And what's worse is that the world sees it and they know it. Both believers and non-believers know that you have this unbalanced cheerfulness by what causes you to cheer or what puts you in a state of cheerfulness and how you respond to things or lack thereof around you. If you want to be a mature believer, you need to have your affections in check. Not only can you be a more mature believer by balancing your convictions and your cheerfulness, but lastly, also your compassions. If you if you want to be a mature believer,s you can't have a unbalanced compassions. Verse nine. Then God said to Jonah, "Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant?" And he said, "I have good reason to be angry, even to death." God ends this section in this book with this question. God intervenes again. He asks Jonah, does he have any reason to be angry? Jonah responds by saying that he has good reason to the point of death. God wants to show the absurdity of his attitude. Jonah's compassions are misplaced. Jonah had a greater concern for personal comfort that is provided by this plant than for the spiritual condition of this entire city. The question is crucial because Jonah does not have any right to demand anything from God. No man can demand anything from God knowing what type of sinner that we are. Verse 10, And the Lord said, You had compassion <coughs> on the plant for which you did not grow and which you did not cause to grow, which came overnight and perished overnight. God wanted Jonah to see the inconsistency and imbalance of all of his compassion. Jonah was compassionate for the destruction of this plant and not the preservation of this city. The short and vain plant is supposed to be an object lesson for Jonah to see how his compassions are backwards. It was God's grace, yet Jonah failed to see it. Jonah did not not work for this plant. He did not cause this plant to grow, and it came and died, and he felt entitled to this plant. Verse 11, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between the right and left hands as well as many animals? God tenderly compares and confronts Jonah's misplaced compassions. Jonah's deep concern for God's creation was disproportional. Jonah had a desire for God's creation, this plant, instead of the crown jewel of all of God's creation, humans. Jonah had somehow grown completely indifferent to the fate of humans beyond the bounds of Israel. There is a a contrast between how God cared and had compassion for Ninevites and how the way Jonah had compassion towards this plant. This phrase, should I not have compassion? This is a key phrase and question, not just for this book, but the entire Bible. When God saw Adam and Eve, God demonstrated his compassion by not only giving us a skin of an animal to cover them, but promised a way for salvation. When Adam sinned by succumbing to the temptations from this fruit from a tree, Christ resisted all forms of temptation and died on a tree. The first Adam played was plunged all humanity into ruins, while the second Adam brought us out of it. All of this is because of God's compassion. God looked at us, us frail humans, and asked, Should I not have compassion? Throughout scripture, we see God's compassion towards humanity. Our God is a God of compassion that's willing to rescue us because of how broken we are. It's out of his love, out of his compassion that he's willing to come down into the world and die for us sinners. We were all at one point groping in the dark, but Christ opened our eyes so that we can see that we needed a savior one way that you can be more like our God in the, in the way that He's compassionate to people is that you go and you share the gospel with other people. You see the potential destruction and, and death of, of, of your loved ones, and it should be heartbreaking to you because the, our, des, our God's desire is that no one perishes, and that should be our desire as well. May we fear the destruction of those who do not know our Savior you'll see that God said to Jonah how there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their left hand and their right. And Different theologians obey what does that mean. Some things that it's, it's that they, were, they have no idea of who God is, this idea of like they don't know right and wrong. Uh, some things it's just, it's just strictly moral reasons, like they, don't, they really have no idea of, of morality or, or, or who God is. I hold to the view that it's, it's children is 120,000 person. These are little children. You know, I have a daughter. She does, I'm like trying to figure out if she's like left handed or right handed. Sometimes she would put, take food from her left hand and she'll put it in her mouth, and other times she'll she's right. Like she doesn't know which hand, which hand she's using. And if that's the case, if it's 120,000 and there's these kids, and just imagine that for every kid there's at least two parents, that means there's about 360,000 persons in this city alone. There is a whole bunch of people here that needed saving. And yet, and yet, God even shows how backwards Jonah is by this phrase at the very end, as well as many animals. It's strange. It like doesn't mean that animals go to heaven or anything like that. But I think it just shows the, the order of creation, that the crown jewel of creation is man, and then animals, and then plants. But Jonah had everything backwards. He loved his plants more than, more than even the animals, and, the, and especially the people of Nineveh. He was trying to, God was trying to appeal to Jonah that there is something greater than plants. Plants have the lowest priority, and that's the thing that Jonah loved most. Jonah's compassion for things were backwards, and Jonah failed to see his own immaturities. As Jonah finished writing this book, and he's reflecting back on this chapter of his life, he learned that through this last chapter that God is way more gracious than he deserves. God is using this to show how immature Jonah really is, that all of his thoughts were in balance. He's now a seasoned believer, and he now writes with humility. He pens this book, and this chapter in particular shows once again that God's mercy is demonstrated in his life. The more we understand God's compassion, the more we must be compassionate towards others. Jonah is humbled and mature to admit that this event happened, which is a list of momentary backsliding (laughs) so that future followers of God will have a balanced view, a more accurate view, a more precise view of who God is and how a believer should live. If you want to be a mature believer, you too must have a balanced conviction, cheerfulness, and compassion. Jonah should have been celebrating and praising God, but in his immaturity, He became self-loathing and filled with self-pity. He focused on what he wanted to focus on instead of what actually happened. Jonah focused on aspects of God that he wanted to focus on instead of who God really is. Jonah should have been like God in showing compassion, but instead he had this compassion towards a plant. Ever wonder what you would be like if, if your theological understanding was more balanced? We would be used by God more because we would be more like our Savior. In order for us to do that, we must carefully search the Scripture and see God for who He is, not what we want Him to be. You must fully embrace God for who He is, even on the things that are hard to understand. God is so much greater than, and beyond us. And there will be moments where His attributes will trouble us because of our own sinful nature. My hope is as we study through the Bible, as we study through this, that your orthodoxy and orthopraxy is faithful to God's word. My desire is that your convictions are balanced regarding the nature and attributes and characters of God. My wish is that what causes you to be cheerful is what causes God to be cheerful. My longing for all of us is our compassion for the lost will match that of our God. And as you grow in your knowledge of God, I trust that God will mature you and grow you to be more and more like a son until we reach into glory. Before I close, turn back to Jonah chapter 3, verse 3. I've hinted at this, that Jonah's writing this in retrospect, and there's this foreshadowing that happens in Jonah chapter 3, verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. This word was, implies that, even as Jonah was finishing this book, and even if this, even though the entire generation of Ninevites were saved in this time, during the time of his writing, the future generations will not. God has spared this generation, but about a hundred years from now, this entire city will actually be destroyed by God. This generation, this first generation, will be saved but the next generation will not. We'll see this in two months as we do another little series in the book of Nahum. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Lord, we're thankful for this privilege to be recipients of your mercy. Lord, we are undeserving of all that you've given us. We are so easily swayed to the extremes and generalities that's revealed in your word because we are by default not people that want to be critical thinkers. Lord, give us wisdom. Allow us to know your word well so we can maneuver through life. Lord, we want to see you for who you are and have a greater view of who you are instead of the attributes that make us happy. Lord, cause us to be humble knowing that we are not there yet, that there's still things about you that we do not know, and there are things about our lives that need to be changed. Lord, we ask for grace to be able to do that. Lord, I pray for those who do not know you, that you would open their eyes as well, that you would change their affections, have them long for you, and understand. let, let them understand what, the, what it took for them to be reconciled to you. Be with us this week, and may we faithfully represent you, and may you give us opportunity to share the gospel <laughs> to those who do not know you. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. We have Sunday school downstairs. Um, if you'd like to join us, we have a few new classes starting this, uh, this week, this Sunday. And if there's any class that you're interested in, we'd love to have you. Um, if not, have a, a blessed week and a blessed Sunday. Thanks.